0: Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. The Cannes Film Festival begins this week, and part of its celebration of our collective return to movies is the world premiere of The Story of Film, A New Generation, from filmmaker and critic Mark Cousins. The latest work from Cousins looks at the most recent decade in cinema and sets out to pick the movies that brought something new to the art form. Cousins has taken on the Herculean task of charting film history, most famously on an even larger scale, with The Story of Film and Odyssey, and with topical works such as Women Make Film, A Story of Children in Film, and early on, Cinema Iran. I reached Cousins at his office-slash-editing suite, and we talked about a few of the movies he selected from the 2010s, and a few that he didn't. He also had fascinating reflections about how we all are watching cinema, about VR, and about his childhood memories of watching movies, which might mark the first time Herbie the Love Bug appears on this podcast. It was almost disorienting to hear Cousins' familiar voiceover in my ear as we spoke, and he had a knack for taking a question into a thoughtful direction more interesting than where I started. I hope you enjoy our conversation, and please stay tuned to The Last Thing I Saw for more highlights in the Cannes Film Festival
1: in the days to come. Okay, that's me on the microphone. Is that better? That's great. Thank
0: you. And this is your uh, this is your office, I assume, or?
1: This is my office and edit suite. Yeah, so desk there is where we do all the editing, and then over there are, you know, various film books, and on the back wall there, they're just... You know obviously each time you make a film you make a new amount of documentation so that's women make film and that's the story of film and there are different bits or different productions the whole
0: trail of, of everything you've covered uh, yeah, yeah, this is my
1: brain <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> and you're about to shoot something else as well or
1: yeah I always I'm always making stuff you know so I've, I'm releasing three films this summer and I've got three or maybe four even in production at the moment. So I like making lots of stuff at the same time.
0: <laughs> that's good. Well, that's good for the rest of us. <laughs> um, yeah, it was wonderful watching the story of film, The New Generation, because I was just so impressed by how much you managed to include. This is the classic task that is a nightmare for mm-hmm. you know, any lover of movies. How do I pick a few films you know, comparatively to the, all the films that are coming out yeah. to represent something? What am I trying to represent? Where did you even start? Do you start with ideas you want to express, or did you start with "Here are five or ten movies that really I know for sure transgressed"? For example, where does it begin, or is it kind of a give and take between those two?
1: Yes, my theme always in these films is innovation. You know, it's not what was the most popular film or what won the most awards. It's trying to say what really uh, refreshed the language of cinema. And I, because I'm very unsnobby about cinema, sometimes really mainstream films do that, like the Spider-Verse film, for example, or sometimes very innovative uh, experimental films do that. So once you've got your threads, your backbone of your story, which is innovation, then it's easier to make the selection. But I always assume that I... Most things I don't know. In other words, I have massive gaps in my knowledge. So I, when I embark on a film like this, I think, well, I know a lot of stuff. I've seen a lot of films, but there's loads of stuff I haven't seen. So I look at the map of the world and think I've seen no films from this country or that country. So I look in to try and fill the gap. So it's a, it's a good, strong background bone and acknowledging your own ignorance. That combination works for me.
0: That's part of what I like about the movie is that it is a combination of discovering new movies, but also seeing movies that are out there that are given a platform, but you didn't maybe appreciate uh, in a certain way. How long did production on this take and and did it precede the pandemic or was it in progress at the beginning of that? Part of what this movie does, it's actually kind of a first history of like viewing the pandemic. One of the first things I've seen that tries in a visual way to get into that.
1: Mm Yeah, Uh, no, it wasn't started before the pandemic. It was made entirely during the pandemic. Um, I work fast and I like working fast, you know, so I got the structure quite quickly. And then I used all the free time in the pandemic just to watch films, and that was very useful. And then the writing and the editing process was reasonably rapid. I don't spend time in an edit searching for, you know, the structure or the theme or the tone or the voice. I usually know what those things will be upfront. So it's a proper child of the pandemic, and the pandemic, as you know, it sent, us, it sent us into our homes, but into ourselves in a way, you know. and when we look into ourselves, one of the things we find in there, if you're a movie fan, is cinema. So it's a slightly more inward film than some of my previous work, and that's pandemic related, I think.
0: How did you choose what would be the first image in the movie? Yeah.
1: I like plunging in, you know, David Lynch says you should float down into a story, but I like diving into a story like it's a swimming pool or something. So I thought if we started with Joker, that would be a good way of the Joker dancing on the steps in the Bronx, and because it was a very controversial moment in a very controversial film. And I wanted to start with a kind of spike but that wasn't enough. When I was watching Joker, I thought of Frozen, a very different film, a film for children, a film adored particularly by young girls, but not only so, and I thought, what if those two films, Joker and Frozen, have something in common? How exciting would it be to edit them together. And I'm not sure if anybody has connected those two films in an edit suite before, but it was a real pleasure and a lot of fun. And, I, and you're smiling when I tell you that. And it brought a smile to our face starting our film that way.
0: Yeah, definitely a, a bold choice. But I think it's also a choice that's true to the decade, you know, I mean, because in that way, the movie was went outward as well as inward, you know, because I think Joker expresses a kind of rupture and, and a kind of violence in the world at large. So I thought that was great. And I, and I also like, in addition to Frozen, but that within a few minutes, you have Cemetery of Splendor as well. Yeah. And having those two movies early on, I think, for me, encapsulated something about the past 10 years.
1: Yeah, I, well, I want to say to you as a, a viewer, you know, this is going to roam widely here. If, if the cinema is a field, let's call it a playing field, we will play both ends of the field. You know, I can't believe I just made a sporting reference. I don't usually <laughs> do that. But, um, but you want to say, you know, we can go from the kind of fury, the volcanic rage of The Joker to the somnambulant, dreamlike feeling of Apichatpong's films, these quasi-surreal, gentle uh, nightscapes, you know? And if you say that cinema is that wide, which it is that wide, then suddenly you've set out your field, you've set out your pitch, as it were, mm-hmm. and then you can explore, hopefully, interestingly, on that pitch.
0: Yeah, you know, also from like a film history, standpoint, each of those films, like Cemetery of Splendor, continues and extends the language that Apeechapong has been developing for now, you know, 20 years. And Joker was kind of, I think, tapped into how studio filmmaking, I don't want to say assimilated, but kind of brought in certain, I don't know, revolutionary, provocative thing that, that maybe was happening in the 2000s, um, yeah. immediately I realize how hard it is to do what you do when I try to generalize in some way but just I think the kind of commodifying dissent in a way you know is is in Joker
1: yeah I mean if, if studio film in America is broadly entertainment cinema then the question for them is always how dark can we go without mm-hmm. using entertainment you know and Joker went pretty far in that direction and I would argue politically also you know but I, I think that that's that's the paradigm that the studio system thinks on, you know, if we want to deliver joy and a kind of utopia, you know, how much can we, you know, how many clouds can we have on that horizon? You know, mm-hmm. that, that was the shock of Joker and it was a shock, you know, a very disturbing film um, and shock is obviously part of our lives. We don't know. This afternoon, if one of us will get hit by a bus, for example. So that sense of shock has to be in our art and has to be in our cinema. Otherwise, it's just bland. And so hats off to Joker for doing that. I had many problems with the film, but hats off for doing that.
0: I will promise I'll, I'll talk about something other than Joker now. <laughs> I want to talk a bit about the categories you chose. And if you could just explain what they mean for, for listeners, you know, the idea of extending the language of film and then the idea of digging.
1: So the film is broken in two parts. The first part tries to look at films that have used the conventional language of cinema, but pushed it a little bit. know, so comedies that have pushed comedy a little bit or horror movies that have pushed horror a little bit into more daring areas. But the second part of the film, I try to ask what has been really new, explosively new in cinema? Often that newness comes from technological change. So, for example, when when we all saw The Irishman for the first time, there was that kind of freaky feeling of the de-aged Robert De Niro. This was kind of new, and so I wanted to look at that. And the second part of the film is called What Have We Been Digging For? Which sounds a bit arty, but what it's trying to say is, you know, if we're all in our everyday lives, in some way searching for something, whether it's satisfaction, or those moments of kind of rapture that make you feel fully alive, then maybe that's what cinema does as well. We, when we see Moonlight for the first time, you think, wow, my God, this, I've just felt so alive. I felt as if I've seen love re-envisioned and something like that. And so the second part of the film tries to look at those movies that kind of re-envisioned cinema
0: something that I also like is how you're showing things that are sometimes harder to pinpoint. Like, here's a movie doing something new with tone. Uh, You know, what comes to mind is PK, or or, or Gangs of Wasipur. you know, and I love that you put that in there, because that's something that is sometimes overlooked
1: yeah, I think tone is the hardest creative question in, in, in the way. You know, story, we can deal with psychology, design, but the tone of a movie is very difficult to get. And Steven Spielberg is very, very good talking about the difference between the tone of Schindler's List and his entertainment films, for example. But PK is this, as you know, it's this Indian film starring Amir Khan. And it's a striking choreographed comedy until something truly disruptive happens really far into the film and it shifts. And I must say, I love films that shift tone. And this one does so brilliantly. And particularly in popular cinema, you know, in a kind of artier type of film, it's easier to play around with tone. But in really popular cinema, to go from light to dark really quickly is um, strikingly daring. And it really worked in this film. PK, which might not be well known to listeners in the Western world, and is actually one of the most most seen films of the last decade.
0: I also like that you bring back movies that I felt somehow fell by the wayside and all the list making and all of that. And you know, one of those was Heart of the Dog.
1: Oh yes, yeah. I think it's a lovely film, isn't it? You know, I think that they, I really feel it's her tone of voice and the use of music and the layering, I personally don't love picture dissolves but there's so many picture dissolves and it feels as if this film is a kind of what they say in music a kind of glissando Mm. a kind of sliding from one note into another note and i i think that since she's a musician she gets the musicality of cinema very well and the fact that she's looking through the eyes of her dog and her dog goes blind and you know it's um it's it's a it's a beautiful film
0: And that also keys into how the movie is open to how cinema connects with other media uh, or connects with other influences. You know, I like that you include The Deserted, the Siming Liang VR, which I saw in Venice on that weird, like, leper's colony island that they turned into the VR um, area.
1: Yes, I saw that there as well. And I thought it was mesmerizing, you know, and uh, lots of people said that VR is fantastic, but not cinema. But I think it really is cinema. And in the hands of a director like Simon Yang, he tells us a ghost story, as we know. And you saw it. It's a, a sick man in the room and maybe his mother's there. But you're sitting on a swivel chair and you're looking behind you because there's stuff happening behind you and to your left and right. And that is directing. You know, that, that, I think that is placing dramatic events and moment, moments in space is really directing.
0: Yeah. For me, the camera placement, the care he took with camera placement in that movie kind of showed where he was coming from. And that's something that VR, it's almost an afterthought. I mean, it's at once at the center of the idea that you're placed somewhere, but also it was kind of. So it was good to see a filmmaker bringing his strengths. And then, you know, you feel like you're inhabiting these haunted corners.
1: I felt when I watched that, that I was seeing a, a Melies film from 1889 <laughs> or something like that.
0: Well, that's, that's a good segue to another facet of the movie, which is, although the subject, the timeline is the 2010s, um, you're often connecting, you know, as you always have, to film history. One thing I love is, for example, It Follows. Mm-hmm. Connecting that to La Région Centrale really is, is wonderful. Also that like, you've got a clip of La Région Centrale because people just reference it, but you actually got a pretty good quality. Yeah.
1: I can't remember. My producer, um, John Archer, probably got that for me. You know, when I wa- when I was watching It Follows, which I thought was a really fantastic merging of the genre of horror with you know formal rigor this slowly moving camera rotating camera and i immediately thought of La Région Centrale you know maybe that's the way my mind works but La Région Centrale which is a sort of arty film about a slowly turning camera it had the same sense of inexorable dread almost what will occur in the frame as the camera moves and so the very slowly moving 360 camera feels as if it will take anything in and it will stop at nothing, including murder or mayhem. It will just keep going. And that is quite spooky and fantastic for horror and also for art cinema, I think.
0: Another thing I liked, uh, speaking of things that kind of fell by the wayside a little bit, was XXY. Oh, yes. You know, that's part of a sequence where you're talking about kind of bodies as well. Bodies. Yeah, uh, and the physicality—I I like that you're able to get into into that in that sequence.
1: I think as, cinema is—I mean, people think that cinema is a storytelling medium, don't they? And there are—I mean, we love stories in cinema, but it's very you know, cinema is about magic and myth and bodies and physicality as well, you know. So I think that movies have always been interested in bodies and uh, effortlessly so, you know. But I think given the um, the fact that gender and sexual politics are maturing and growing up, up hopefully, and getting richer, then it's no surprise that in the last decade, we've had films that have been really good on that. You know, like X-H-Y-O-I and various other ones.
0: Yeah, you kind of bring it up in a slightly different context, but Under the Skin is almost a big movie for me in that regard. That movie is a great movie for me about alienation from your body in a way. Um, I mean, the way it ends, I mean, I won't spoil it for the few people who might not have seen it, is one of the most terrifying things yes. I've seen on screen. I guess you put it in more in terms of the kind of mingling, the hybrid format it has and of how it yeah. used star. start.
1: Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's such a signature film and such a sentinel film from Jonathan Glazer that it could have appeared almost anywhere. In my story and in, in, in the film that I was making, it is really, I think, one of the great films of our times. And, and as you say, it is about, about being an alien and about bodies. And interestingly, that a lot of trans people or some trans critics talked about it as a film about trans identity. And it wasn't intended to be like that. But when you look at the film through those eyes, you can see, yes, indeed, it can be read in that way. And that's the richness of the film, that it, it can be read in multiple ways.
0: Yeah, yeah. Generally, the movie, uh, you know, and always a mission for you is extending the map of cinema um, yeah. and, and movies around the world. And I, I always want to ask, uh, what were some countries that you wanted to include, but for one reason or another, you know, were not able to include?
1: I mean, there's nothing from Ethiopia in this film, you know, and Ethiopia, oh. uh, there are a bunch of young Ethiopian women making good films, but I didn't get any of those in. I mean, I've got big blind spots. There isn't nearly enough from Russia in this film, you know, or from Ireland or from Greece, uh, you know, I could have put five films from Greece. And so it's always painful to leave out big chunks of the world or, where possible, you know, I tried to find something that would, for example, one film that would sing, uh, represent the Greek weird wave, as it was called, you know, that new surrealism that emerged in Greek cinema. So you find, try to find a film that will stand for the area or the terrain or the nation.
0: Yeah, it struck me as a harder decade than, than many because, yeah, you couldn't necessarily point to a particular wave in the same way things were classified in the past always. Like the Romanian new wave, I guess, is more of a 2000s phenomenon.
1: There is one great one, uh, Radu Yudas. I oh, sorry, of
0: course. Yeah, right.
1: That, that I love. But yeah, you're right. Yeah, And I think it's good that we can't summarize the last 10 years too clearly. What it means is that there weren't just a few big stories of what was happening in cinema. There were more smaller stories, yeah. more fertile parts of the world for filmmaking, more new filmmakers, etc. So it's good that we can't sum up the 2010s the way we can, the 1940s, for example, or even, to a certain extent, the 1960s. If you can sum something up too easily, then it means there isn't enough fertility there.
0: Something about the paradigm is producing a little. Yes. When I was working with a writer, he brought back the Manny Farber termite and white elephant classification, you know, that one possible scheme that might work for the time.
1: I mean, I think it's, it's still Manny Farber's ideas are still useful, but even those, you know, are a bit limiting. You know, I think that if we want to look really creatively and with open eyes at cinema, ideally you want to look with no expectation and no categories. You are not looking for termite art or elephant. And, you know, I think just to look as openly as possible and without expectation. I want
0: to ask about just the process, uh, getting back to just the filmmaking process for this. How do you go about composing the script for it? Like, do you have to winnow it down and and then the kind of alchemy of figuring out, bringing in images? Like, what does a rough cut look like for this movie?
1: Mm. Well, you know, luckily, because we work without any funding from television or from institutes or foundations or anything, it means I'm pretty free to make the film the way I want it. And that includes the length of the film. This one's two hours 40. And... It just turned out that way. That was the reason, you know, nobody was saying it should be that length. So I guess roughly the number of films should be in it. There are roughly 100 films in this one. And then I get little bits of A4 paper. uh, And every time I have an idea for a film clip or a scene or a moment or even a piece of music, I'll write it on one of those bits of paper. And after scribbling for some weeks or maybe even a month, I maybe have... 300 little bits of paper, each representing a scene or a moment. And then I start to sequence them and think, uh, so here's the piece of paper about Joker. And I think, oh, that needs to go right at the front. And then I think, here's a piece of paper about a very complex Indian film, Ship of Theseus, that needs to go really towards the end. And slowly I get like a deck of cards where the sequence of the film, the structure of the film is roughly made in those bits of paper. And then I'll sit down and look at the film clips themselves. And I will write at the computer that I'm talking to you on now. I will write live. I'll play the clip and then write the script to it. The script never comes first, always after the clip. And I think that's important for me. That gives a sense of liveness, present tenseness, in-the-momentness. And so once I've done that, we've got our bunch of cards and the kind of live script. Then my editor, Timo Langer, comes in and he starts assembling from my voice and the clips and, where, and whatever other material I've suggested.
0: For some reason, I kind of flash back to talking to Frederick Wiseman and how he described putting together these enormous, putting cards on the wall. I don't know if he still does that, but.
1: <laughs> I think that really works, you know, I, I, you can't really structure a film in a, Microsoft Word document or in a spreadsheet, you know, it needs to be bits of paper and you need to be able to shift things around to be alive to the structural effect that moving a scene will have. The ripple effect that moving a scene will have. I always get to the computer as late as possible in the process.
0: Well, it's almost as if you just, it needs to occupy more space in the world.
1: Yes, it does. Uh, yeah, the room that I'm sitting in now is really very big. And I've got, because we're a podcast, we can't see, but if if your listeners can hear rustling of paper here, this is a very long piece of paper, which is the running order of the film. And so big sheets of paper, two meters long, two meters wide, et cetera, whatever, help in all that structuring work. Because the structuring of the film is the hardest bit. And I know people who spend a year in an edit looking for the structure and i can't afford to do that and it would also drive me crazy so i tried to get it done first
0: yeah what was you know one or two of the harder uh, transitions or more challenging ones for you in, in the movie
1: the the movie didn't change very much from first cut to finished cut but there was one bit that wasn't working there's a brilliant swedish film called border directed by ali Abazi.
0: oh yeah i love that movie yeah.
1: and i had it in the wrong place and um, It was near the beginning of the film and it wasn't working there. Um, but then when I moved it to the end of the film, and the end of the film, I started asking the question, who are we and how have, how have cinema pictured us? Then I realised it fitted there better because this is a film about identity and about being an outsider and finding your place in the world and being affirmed by finding somebody else like you. So once I put it in there at the end of the film, it fitted like a hand in a glove. So that was tricky to change that. But that was pretty much the only structural change again. So it means that they edit, even though it's quite a long film, the edit didn't take very long, like one month or something.
0: Wow. Okay. That's daunting to anyone else who wants to attempt (laughs) all of this. Um, Well, it
1: depends how your brain works. You know, I have a structural brain. I have one of those brains that perceives the structure of something, you know, sort of engineer's type brain, you know, so that... That isn't the trickiest bit for me.
0: Uh, Just curious, were your parents uh, interested in cinema or engineering? (laughs) Uh,
1: No, not at all. Well, I come from a very working class family, you know, so my mom was a home help and my father was um, a motor mechanic. So I suppose as a motor mechanic, he had some interest in engineering. They liked movies, like many working class people. My my mom loved Doris Day and my dad loved John Wayne, which is pretty much a standard for their generation. You know, very mainstream stuff, never foreign films of any sort.
0: Do you remember any movie experiences with them going to the movies?
1: I they took me to see <laughs> they, when I the first, they took me to see Herbie Rides Again that Love Bug Disney film. I remember that very clearly. Yeah, I remember that. And in terms of watching films with them, I remember watching one Christmas uh, at night with my dad. It's a Wonderful Life, and at the end, I looked around at him and he was crying, and I'd never seen my dad cry before. I remember that, and I remember watching that film Gypsy uh, uh, with my mom when she was ironing. And I remember just seeing her ironing and looking up at the film, but she had a hot iron and I thought, you're going to burn your hand because you're looking at the film. And then I had another, because I was brought up very religious, uh, we were at a very early age showing the film The Exorcist on VHS, on old videotape. But because we were brought up Catholic, My aunt took holy water and blessed the video player before she put the videotape in for us to watch this film about the devil. And of course it made it even more dramatic, Uh ritualistic. This film was so scary that you had to bless your video player with holy water.
0: Yeah. (laughs) They they should have put put that in the promotional material. I know, it certainly
1: (laughs) added to the sense of occasion.
0: Yeah, that's incredible.
1: And And the sense that cinema is a kind of sacred thing almost.
0: And that almost goes to the idea of transgression again, you know, what are the movies that thinking of transgression as the way a movie does something new.
1: Yeah, Uh, I think I mean, I think that I in real life, it's really hard to transgress and it's often very bad to transgress because you can hurt other people. But in cinema, we can go there, we can really transgress imaginatively and in a visual realm so we can feel what it is like to go places that we will never go in real life. And that's, of course, fantastic.
0: I mean, along those lines, was there any movie that I mean was too transgressive to include in, in a sense, just that would have sort of capsized the movie or kind of just people would have been overwhelmed by it in some way?
1: Not that I can think of, Nick. You know, if I mean, if, I think there are lots of transgressive movies that are in a bad way. You know, that they massively represent, misrepresent a population or a community or something, and because they're just bad, they wouldn't be included. You know, so that you could say that there's a very that it's easy to transgress which is similar to traduce or to assault visually something but i i wouldn't consider those you know because they're just not very good and it's yeah. easy to do that
0: i mean a couple of times you mention you say you know a lesser filmmaker you know would have wouldn't have been able to pull this off and i started wondering who who are the lesser filmmakers
1: <laughs> uh God, you know i I forget the last... I'm not hiding here. If I could think of some lesser filmmakers, I would mention them to you. But if I see a bad film, I try to just wipe it from my memory bank and it seems to work. It seems to go. I can't remember the last film I saw that I thought was really bad because I've just forgotten it.
0: There's also never enough time. You know, it's like you really have... I really choose what I'm going to see.
1: And also, if I'm 30 minutes into a film and it's really terrible, I will walk. I'm out of there. Because, you know... I can walk out and see a tree or a sunset or a friend, and yeah. that's better than sitting in a terrible film.
0: That sort of brings me to, you know, watching uh, at home a lot during the pandemic and yeah. the the idea of uh, cinema needing, a, or in my opinion, kind of needing a continuous, to, to run, you know? Yeah. Um, how was your experience watching things?
1: Yeah. I. I, I... Frequently during lockdown, people would say to you, I'm halfway through a film, uh, such a film. You think, well, how can you be halfway through? You know, would you say to people, I'm halfway through my pizza and I had half of it yesterday and I'm eating the next half tomorrow? Right. <laughs> so, yeah, but I am ill-disciplined as well. And I think the thing is, you know, when for me, the nature of cinema, the, a very, very profound element of it is saying to a filmmaker, here's 90 minutes or two hours of my time. You are in control do something with that time, use it well. You know? yeah, so yeah. I don't want to be in control of those two hours. I don't want to have, have a pause button. Um, I want somebody else to do cinema to me, as it were, you know? And so that may, meant that, yes, I've watched, like everybody else, i watched lots of films on streaming and, and broadcasting and during lockdown, during hibernation, but I mean, it's not cinema. And it, it's not that kind of submission to another mm-hmm. imagination.
0: Mm. What was the first movie that you watched in a cinema, you know, after the pandemic?
1: Uh, well, we, had a op- we opened up for a while and I saw Tenet on um, an IMAX screen. What uh, did you think? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I thought I, it made me feel really stupid because I had no idea what was going on. But, you know, the overwhelming physical feel of being back in the movie theater and to feel the sound waves through your body and to have to move your head left or right was fantastic. So I sort of loved everything apart from the story, but the story is never crucial to me anyway, you know. Yeah. And then after we opened up the second time, I went to see um, Godzilla and Kong. Yeah which I have to say, I love doing it. I just couldn't work out why they were fighting. They seem to forget <laughs> to tell us, you know, two two big monsters fighting, yeah, great, but I couldn't work out. Maybe I missed the bit where they said, here's why they're beating the shit out of each other.
0: <laughs> yeah, Godzilla didn't, didn't return something he borrowed or something. I know,
1: I know. And um, so, uh, but still, it was great fun because it's the spectacle of cinema, the ritual of cinema, the the cinema is bigger than life. It's luminosity, all these things, it's sonic richness, all this stuff we can't recreate at all.
0: That's what's great about seeing those movies in, and together with other people as well. I mean, did I mean did you have a feeling of kind of solitude? Do you have that feeling when, you know, even when you're working on, on one of your films because obviously you work on it alone, but what you're working on is so much a group experience. You know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Many people say that the reason they go to the movies is to laugh together and to cry together and share a collective experience. I have to be really honest, Nick, and say that I, I do not go to the movies for that reason. I try to go to the movies on Tuesday afternoon, Wednesday afternoon, Thursday afternoon, when they're almost empty, and I can feel there's, I'm on my own, and nobody's going to sit in front of me and use their cell phone, etc. So I get I agree with everything about the cinema experience, but I don't feel the huge need to be in a huge audience it's just not part of it for me i think that i'm more of a lone wolf than that and i think that cinema for me is a more solitary experience than that
0: yeah yeah i want to ask about a couple other elements in the movie um, yeah. that are sort of non non-cinema elements um yeah. and and how you decide to put them in uh, one of them is uh just recurring motif which i really like of of people closing their eyes or even just yeah. with their eyes already closed. Could you talk about bringing that into the movie?
1: Yes, because we've made this film under lockdown, I couldn't go out around the world and film very much at all, you know, but I needed something, some other imagery in the film. And um, because we, because I was using dreamlike films like Api Pong's work and Leos Karak's work and, and Jonathan Glazer and many people, and I thought, wouldn't it be nice if I had a, if I gave the feel that we've all been sort of dreaming the COVID years, you know, they would all fall asleep and inside we went into this kind of collective unconscious where we saw lots of movies. So I just went on social media, on Twitter, and I said, look, I'm making this film and I need people to film themselves on their mobile phone falling asleep, closing their eyes. And we got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them from all around the world, from India and from Brazil and from Guatemala and from West Africa and South Africa and the Nordic countries in America and Europe and everywhere. So that was fantastic. And so I realized that that could be the kind of visual thread in the film, the sense of we've all been dreaming together. And as we know, falling asleep can lead to nightmares or to reverie, you know, and that's fine, you know, and that would capture some of the complexity of the COVID time. You know, A lot of us who are quite um, solitary people and loved it in some ways, but of course it was a terrible tragedy for lots of people. Um, So I thought I would capture the complexity of that. And it was really moving to see these people, you know, from all different parts of the world filming themselves. Yeah. And I think that COVID made us realize that we're one species because it hit the whole species. And in a way, you could argue that cinema, you know, performs the same function on all of us. You know, it all tries to take us into a slightly otherworldly realm. So maybe in a way cinema makes us all feel a bit like one species as well. So that's, um, sorry, that's a long answer to your question of why I had those dreamers.
0: No, no, that they, it's great. Um, and I mean, it's almost like a little Kiristami sort of touch somehow, I felt, you know, that you're somehow plunged into someone else's watching experience or, or yeah. sensory experience.
1: I was lucky enough to know Kirostami and work with him a bit. So st- right. a bit, there's an influence on, from him on my stuff, certainly. I went to Iran to make a history of Iranian cinema Mm -hmm. uh, for British television for Channel 4. But then we made a little half-hour film uh, about going to find one of his actors and see one of his boy actors who had grown up.
0: And then one other, uh, speaking of kind of the non-clip elements in the movie, uh, was the Minsk Festival. Yes. Could you explain that?
1: Yes. So I went to, Min- I was invited to go to Minsk in Belarus to show a film that I'd made about uh, the atomic age called Atomic. And it was a complex trip. The KGB in Minsk tried to prevent the- to ban the film. We had to move it along. But um, I've been to many film festivals around the world. And I was astonished at how this film festival that I went to opened their festival. Instead of, you know, the happy stuff and thanking sponsors and all that sort of stuff. They had this dance routine in which a guy on stilts was covered in kind of black material. And then he woke up and people started to crawl out from under the movie theater curtain. And it was a depiction of the totalitarian state of Belarus. Deeply serious, profoundly affecting and daring way to open a film festival. And as we know in many places in the world where freedoms are not afforded or where LGBT rights are under threat or where, you know, uh, governments from Brazil to India to Hungary to Poland to many countries, including my own, I would say to some extent, are um, narrowing the possibility for people's lives, then film festivals really have a job to do. They're not just entertainment. They're not just the kind of retail window for the film industry. They're trying to push back the state and argue for freedom and tolerance and diversity. And this was the, exam- this was the case in this wonderful f- experience that I had in Belarus. And I love going to festivals and places where the festival has a job to do.
0: Yeah. Okay, now I get to the hard part. Uh, I'm gonna talk about, I'm gonna ask about some movies you left out. Boyhood?
1: Boyhood's not in there, no. Um, I dealt with Link later in my last film, and so I thought that okay. I didn't need to go there again. But I love the film. Love the film.
0: It covered so much time period. Yeah. I was I was waiting for it to be folded in and somehow some time yeah. And then mostly because you've included Black Mirror, I was curious, you know, about Twin Peaks the Return, whether that
1: I haven't seen it. I've done a lot about David Lynch in the past, you know, and yeah. he's in the story of Film and Odyssey a lot, and you know, so I've done a lot, but I I'm waiting, that my local cinema is going to show the new Twin Peaks as a single event on the big screen, and I'm waiting to see it in that format.
0: Perfect conditions, <laughs> yeah, that would be great, yeah. I watched it during like a winter here when the uh, heating was off, and I was <laughs> just huddled and shivering watching the whole oh. thing by the glow, by the atomic glow. And, and then last one, Tony Erdman.
1: I know. I mean, I love Tony Erdman. I really love it. However, you know, a a few years ago, I made a film called Women Make Film, a road movie through cinema, and it was 14 hours long or something. And Tony Erdman is very in it, substantially in it. And so I didn't, I mean, I know that's not an excuse, but I I just didn't want to cover the same ground as it were.
0: No, absolutely. So the the podcast is called The Last Thing I Saw. And so obviously, I have to ask, what was the last movie that you saw?
1: The last movie I saw was In the Heights. Oh, wow. I saw it quite recently on the big screen. And I have to say, I loved it. Particularly, there's a scene, there's a musical sequence called 96,000. Is that what it's called? Yeah. It's sort of, lots of people have said it's a Busby Berkeley number, and it is. But it's also Hindi cinema, what some people call Bollywood. It's profoundly influenced by Bollywood. And I think this isn't acknowledged enough that the best um, choreographed kaleidoscopic scenes in Western cinema are really influenced by Bollywood. And so I think that I love the hybridity of that. And I thought it was a real film for movie history buffs, because you can see so many influences in it.
0: All right, well, I guess that sort of brings us to the end. I feel kind of terrible because I don't want to underrepresent your movie because there's so much going on and there's so many movies in it. So I I hope at some point I'm able to write about it and, and draw more of the connection, and see it again most of all, because part of the elegance of it is that it's hard for me to replicate (laughs) yeah, that <laughs> that's very nice journey of it. Um, thank you. So, so, Mark, thank you so much for for taking the time, and perhaps we'll we'll be able to say hello at some point in person.
1: <laughs> that would be nice. Thanks so much for your questions, Nick.
0: You've been listening to the Last Thing I Saw with your host Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song Montserrat. Thank you for listening.